0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Rosie Wilby, the writer and comedian whose new book is called Is Monogamy Dead?, which is a question that should furnish us with at least 20 minutes of discussion, I'd have thought.
1: <laughs> oh, probably could, could be way more than that. I think my friends who came to see the original comedy show, which the book has been based on, often spent hours and hours deep into the night fiercely debating and talking about their own experiences. There does seem to be sort of something in the air at the moment. I mean, last... I think last
0: weekend, I think I saw a piece in the Observer by actually a fellow comedian, a a colleague of mine, Elf Lyons. Yes, who I know
1: very, very well. Yes, she has written a piece in the Observer this week. There's been pieces in in the Times and in Stylist magazine. There's been all kinds of different pieces which have taken a slightly more intelligent stance, perhaps, than I think when polyamory and having multiple relationships was covered in the media. In the past, it might have been with a slight freak show element. Whereas now, perhaps we're looking at, ooh, you know, is this actually quite a good idea for all of us? I mean, I very much take the standpoint of I'm not really suggesting that people should live a certain way I'm just thinking we should all perhaps be be tolerant and communicate and think about what our language around relationships and concepts like monogamy really means and how woolly and ambiguous some of these words are I mean the word love is is used for so many different meanings that I kind of wish we had all the different types of love like like the Greeks had and and I also think monogamy Although we assume we know what it means, and people say, Oh, yes, I'm monogamous. I did a survey before my comedy show asking what counts as cheating. That was the key question that I asked. And it turned out that for many people, it wasn't about the sort of physical boundaries about having sex with someone or kissing someone, the far more important things to a large number of people were the emotional facets of monogamy or non-monogamy and their partner falling in love with somebody else even if they didn't have sex with them might be more hurtful or if they were staying up all night talking to somebody or if they were texting and emailing intimate thoughts I think I think there's far more nuanced discussion and, and questions around monogamy than we maybe think. I think but there's when an assumption about, isn't about
0: what counts as cheating, but also actually monogamy itself as a concept. You know, you just you, you describe in your book say the Greek root is the idea that you have one relationship for your whole life. Yes, and. You know, we've kind of retooled that, haven't we? we we've
1: really rejigged out a bit, haven't we? It's sort of one marriage at a time, really, now, isn't it? Because the whole springboard for the book was me looking at my own romantic history and realising that, like many of my friends, I had been very much a serial monogamist. And I suppose I asked the question does that really still count as monogamy? It's just a different way of incorpor- incorporating variety. And perhaps some people, particularly some of the gay male friends I have, actually incorporate variety variety you know in a more parallel way rather than a serial way by having a primary relationship and a person they share resources with and live with and sort of settle down with in a practical sense but maybe just have some very very honest and respectful sexual openness and gay men often negotiate that really really successfully and actually their marriage statistics are very very healthy there are far less gay men getting divorced than lesbian couples which when I tell people that they're always surprised they people always say oh but women surely they stay together and are really faithful and loyal and and, I mean, what, what I had to look at is my identity. Yeah, we, should, a, we should
0: say for the listeners that you're coming from, this, I'm from a I'm gay stand, a standpoint. A gay female yeah. standpoint,
1: yes. So so I was sort of looking at the fact that so many lesbians, in, in contrast to the gay men, were serially monogamous and, and incorporating variety that way. But what I'm trying to do is rather than make it a gay book, which of course a lot of my fans at my comedy shows are from the LGBT scene, but, but really looking at what those patterns of behaviour tell us in a more universal way about gendered behaviour and about human sexuality in a much broader sense. We have this
0: idea in the book that gay and lesbian relationships are a sort of way of, you know, <laughs> almost a sort of distillation of you know <laughs> what men want and what women want I think um, in a sense you know, they the, are not muddled up by well
1: it's like a sort of test case in a science experiment isn't it? it's like the control experiment where you remove one factor you remove the influence of the opposite biological sex and I think that's really interesting and, and can't be ignored and we shouldn't make an assumption that lesbians and gay men behave differently because they're gay I think lesbians gay men behave differently because we're women and because we're men
0: I have to ask this because I'm the sort of stalest, malest, palest, straightest, most <laughs> middle-aged person. You know, that's, that's, that's why I work at Spectator. You know, if I were to suddenly become elaborately polyamorous, you know, Elabage. my children would find it confusing, is the objection <laughs> that a lot of people make, that, you know, the sort of fluidity you describe works very well when you haven't got a sort of family structure that,
1: mm. you know, as
0: it were, traditional yeah. society tends to dictate. I mean, how how would you kind of respond to
1: that? um, One of the interesting things is I did exchange some emails with a young man who had written an article about growing up in a polyamorous household and having polyamorous parents and he said that for him and his brother it was just wonderful because they had so many more fun, caring adults to play with them and look after them and it just seemed you know, perfectly normal and he is now... Very much open to having relationships either monogamously or not. And he sort of sounded incredibly well adjusted and was very open to, you know, being straight or not. And just, just very sort of open to a lot of concepts and not perhaps suffering from... You know this this kind of dreadful shame. I think a lot of us feel around sex and around our desires, and we're not programmed really in a biological sense to really be happy. I mean, anthropologist Helen Fisher has has talked a lot about the different <laughs> Frankly, stages the of love. <laughs> well, I, well, I, the thing is, the different stages of love are sort of act the very different parts of the brain engaged in those different stages of lust, romance, and, a, and then attachment, and of course originally these stages sort of worked okay when we didn't really live that long. We, we lived just enough to sort of see our children off out into the world and to fend for themselves. Whereas now that, that sort of lifelong monogamy and commitment is much, much more difficult because I suppose our desires do change. But it's it's perfectly possible for the brain to sort of be attached to one partner and have very strong feelings of romantic attachment or desire for another person simultaneously but I think we we don't talk about this and we we feel we're cheating we feel terribly guilty and I think a conversation about it all just means that we could be monogamous but be monogamous in a in a more successful and happier way which is the conclusion and the end sort of part of my own personal narrative arc where I've come to in the end in that I am starting a relatively new eight months in now monogamous relationship in a sexual sense but I think we have had much more intelligence discussion around the emotional aspect and how we actually need other people and I mean I suppose the the more challenging aspect is that is my continuing closeness in on an emotional level with my ex-partner who I had a sort of pardon the phrase conscious uncoupling um, with who I no longer have a sexual relationship with but there's there's definitely a sense of sort of family and her being part of the fabric of my life so I think you know if we have these discussions and we actually realise that relationships are not all black and white there's a very broad spectrum of emotional connection that we experience with lots of different people in our lives I think it's freeing for all of us
0: but what you're describing I mean, you've got various models through the book. You're describing now you're in a relationship where you're sexually exclusive, but emotionally much more plural, and that seems to be the absolute inverse of the you know very successful standard gay male relationship, which is tends to be sexually very plural, mm. but emotionally exclusive.
1: Yes, I think I think it is, and again, that may be a thing about gendered priorities and gendered behaviour. I mean I sort of quote uh
0: biological essentialism here. This is Well, I mean heresy. we
1: obviously you have to be a little bit careful, particularly as I, I very much support some of my friends who are actually trying to do away with gender binary labels altogether and the idea of what it means to be a man or means to be a woman but I think there's no getting away from the fact that we tend to have certain priorities and I think they are illustrated in, in male and female behaviour but of course there are always I mean one of the women that I interview in the book is my comedian friend, feminist comedian Kate Smurthwaite, who has an open relationship and she's very different to me in that her priority probably is sex and having lots of sexual partners and she has a wonderful primary relationship with her male partner James and they they've given me a really really interesting and fascinating and insightful interview and so I suppose in some ways she's behaved she's a heterosexual woman behaving more like a gay man so of course there are differences and varieties in the way humans behave but I just thought it was it was too much to ignore the the very very clear patterns of behaviour that were indicated by by gay men and lesbians, and it was certainly something to look at.
0: I mean, one of the sort of curious paradoxes seems to be you're describing that societies which have placed a kind of really strong and in a weird ways, so as sort of our generation or, you know, the, the sort of post-war generations, has a really strong idea that marriage is not just a social institution, but it's, it's got kind of bundled into this idea of sort of it has to be lifelong, profound, yeah. utterly satisfying romantic love. And you sort of say that in countries where there's a general understanding that, as Jimmy Goldsmith said, you know, if you marry your mistress, you create a vacancy, um, <laughs> yeah. that actually these, these relationships last longer, that the divorce rate is higher where people have higher expectations.
1: Oh definitely yes and i think there have been studies done showing that in countries uh, such as italy and france where there's more tolerance of affairs and sort of a discreet understanding that they go on and they happen the marriage the marriages are more successful and divorce rates are lower as well so yes i think it's certainly become Marriage has become bundled up in this whole romantic fantasy, the whole sort of myth of, of finding this person that that completes us. I mean actually the the idea of finding our other half sort of is very a very, very old idea. but I think you know times of adversity obviously made people really look at marriage in a in a much more practical and economic sense. And to some extent, the gay men that I'm talking about probably look at that primary relationship as... You know, more practical, kind of pragmatic relationship about sharing resources, and I'm sure there's a lot of love there. But that we all know that love changes over time, and and the sort of very very heady passion that we feel right at the beginning does does alter. The chemicals do sort of dwindle in the brain, and we acclimatize to the to the very exciting drugs that we're on. What we
0: call limerence, or yeah, actually, well, will we'll be funny. I think to be, you know, you are arguing here for. You know, a very sort of explosion of these traditional things is that you're in the book, you're quite a soppy old thing, you know. Ah,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, a, a great yeah. deal of it seems to be like, I can't get over my ex.
1: Yes, I mean, that that which was, is quite a
0: monogamous feeling, you might oh, say.
1: It, yes, definitely. Well, now, one idea that I talk about is perhaps being too monogamous because, of course, if your partner does leave. Or if your partner dies, which is, of course, what has happened very sadly to to my dad, my mum passed away nearly 20 years ago. So he's actually, well, it might be wrong to say he's never got over it because he has a very happy life with lots and lots of friends and a real community of neighbours who look out for him. And he's always done lots and lots of activities and goes on holidays, goes to concerts with different people. But he's never married again or never had a relationship again in a romantic sense. And so I wondered if, you know, to some extent I had a similar, because we do learn behavior from our parents, whether we try and rebel against them or not, which I think I did as a teenager. But yes, I did find it very, very difficult to to get over a, a relationship ending, the one that I suppose I thought was, yes, this is my now I'm here, and i'll I'll accept this person for better or worse, and for the things that for all the things that don't quite work out and that we we struggle with, I, I love this person and I want to be with her. Yes, <laughs> you know, kind of almost a sort of existentially despairing experience for me. I kind of felt I was catapulted into. So many questions about relationships and about my identity and about my existence in the world, how we define ourselves through relationships as well and how actually sometimes being single for a while can be a really, really healthy thing where we grow again and find ourselves again. So... Yeah, I'm I'm a real romantic. I mean, the rel- new relationship I'm in now, I would say, is very, very romantic and really beautiful, even though there's perhaps mature discussion about monogamy. And of course, when you go on a first date with someone and you say, I've got a book coming out, they go, what's the title? And you go, ah, it's called Is Monogamy Dead? <laughs> and of course, then you have to have quite a discussion about where this has all come from. So, so yes, I am a real romantic, and I suppose to some extent I wanted to look at how I'd been my own worst enemy in my relationships by very much buying into the romantic movies and the fairy tale myth and how, despite the fact that I love some of the more realistic films about relationships like Richard Linklater's brilliant trilogy Before, before Sunrise, Sunset and Midnight you know, and we do sort of eventually in the final film see the couple really bickering and struggling, I had sort of bought into the idea of of finding someone who suddenly everything works and everything's perfect. And, of course, it's not like that in reality.
0: Well, in sort of literary terms, I mean, it's always like films, with the exception of Richard Linklater, tend to end with the couple getting together. They do, that's exactly the point, yeah. novels, oddly enough, seem to... You know, let not begin with it, but actually novels never end like that. Novels are normally about, you know, if you look at sort of people like Updike or Kingsley Amis Mm. or Bellow or Roth, you know, they're all about, particularly American novels about adulterous men. But, you know, they they go go true. The the dory of marriages, I mean, Shakespeare plays obviously end with, with weddings.
1: Yes, that's true. That's true. Yes, I suppose because I've I've always been a huge film lover and I've consumed films at a rapid pace and and always been to see lots of film because I think in London we're so spoilt with all the film festivals and, and all the wonderful cinemas and sort of art house cinemas and so on that we have. I've always consumed a huge volume of film, perhaps even more so than books. So I suppose... That was where I absorbed a lot of my messaging.
0: That right. may, may have done any the damage. <laughs> do you, is there a case, do you think, that you know, if we if we were to sweep away the sort of general social expectation of monogamy and all the sort of literary representations and all the things that make us think of monogamy as some sort of ideal, that a whole lot of the sort of what you know, the, the tension and excitement and the aspiration itself would vanish? That you know, setting ourselves up against <laughs> an impossible ideal is part of what?
1: Yeah, I mean, yes, so of course, of. you can be too pragmatic that you just burst the bubble but if
0: we didn't think sex was at all dirty or shameful you know it wouldn't become any more interesting than tennis you know (laughs) I rather like tennis (laughs) well I do too but
1: (laughs) (laughs) we can be very very dramatic in a good game of tennis Well, I, yes, I, I do know what you're saying. And I was worried, I think, when I started on this journey of a, a trilogy of comedy shows, which now dates back seven years, investigating love and relationships. I thought, gosh, am I going to become a love bore who's just analysing everything? And, I mean, famously, I think the sex researchers, Kinsey and so on, uh, Masters and Johnson, you know, they didn't always have the most healthy and robust kind of sex lives <laughs> themselves. them. <not> sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so i was a little worried about whether i was really setting myself up to be to be disappointed but i think for me and you know i think a lot of this is so personal and what works for you i think for me i felt more empowered by understanding a lot more about love and relationships and how they work and what i'm looking for in a relationship and how to ask for that from from a partner and yes it does feel very very exciting and heady and romantic and sexy to be in the new relationship that I'm in and I think I couldn't have done that without thinking about language around relationships. I mean all the people that I know who've perhaps perhaps slightly younger people who've devised new language to talk about relationships in a different way. I think they feel empowered and liberated by that. So I, I think it can only be a good thing to think a bit about what we want.
0: Yes. I mean, one of the poignant bits in your book is you sort of say, you know, when being gay was a bit taboo, you know, you had much tighter communities yes. and, you know, there was a sort of, you know, the opportunity to, in a way, in these supportive communities, invent and reinvent norms of how a romantic relationship happened. And then, you know, mm. clearly the stigma being, you know, widely removed suddenly get pushed into a very standard straight acting box. Yes, I mean, do you regret that? Do you, do you think bubble. the equal mar- marriage sort of efforts... They're obviously morally admirable, have it in course. a way taken something away from them?
1: Yes, I think, um, and there are definitely other LGBT writers who argue the same case. Julie Bindle had a book that, that very much made that point, that through moving forwards, we've actually taken huge steps backwards, because the gay community, when we were sort of fighting a common enemy, we got together and... and supported one another gay men and lesbians and trans people and bisexual people different races different classes we really all communed together of course the wonderful film pride showed how we got together with the unlikely allies of the miners when they were on strike and um, to sort of fight the, the Thatcher government. So I think there was something, you know, in a weird way, in a very strange paradoxical way, something joyful about about being oppressed because it created this real sense of family and people getting together, which has really been lost. A lot of the LGBT venues in London have now closed. And, of course, people are going off and perhaps breaking into more nuclear units and having families in a much more conventional way and of course on the one hand you know I campaigned for those things I stood as a student in uh, 1992 on Valentine's Day doing a spoof wedding demo outside York Minster thinking that this was such a sci-fi concept that's two women or two men would marry. And we sort of dressed up and were shouting through megaphones and we were terrified because we thought we were talking about something very, very radical. So I think we're
0: actually speaking 50 years to the day after the decriminalisation of homosexuality. Male homosexuality. Yeah,
1: I, we are. And it's just so peculiar how those great leaps forward in equality have, I think for for a number of LGBT people, really meant something much more nuanced and and there's a sense of bereavement in, in a real tangible way about what has been lost about so many of the spaces where we all got together being knocked down and being sort of turned into luxury flats I mean that's about money as much as it's about community and politics but I think that this there's really something that that has been lost and all of that I think plays into the ideas around monogamy and how we have relationships and these sort of normative ideas about how we should have relationships because, as you quite rightly said, the gay community was perhaps a bit liberated from that and we did perhaps reinvent relationships and do them in ways that that we wanted and lesbians were often retaining real close ties with ex-partners and sort of consciously uncoupling long before that became a trendy sort of buzz phrase and Gwyneth Paltrow was talking about it and that was a really great way of building a community and lots of women who looked out for one another because it was a smaller community and and they had to and I think that there's so much that was really special about what that older generation of of LGBT people did that uh, it would be a shame to lose sight of some of the really good aspects of that.
0: Now, you're in quite a new relationship, so I'm not inviting you to propose on air, but would you ever consider getting married?
1: Oh well, yeah, I mean, it's really funny because I have had a really difficult relationship with marriage, and when... Obviously, it was all coming in legally. I was one of the people who was saying, well, of course, on many levels, this is great. But do we really want this? Do we really want to adopt these normative structures? Will we lose something in exactly the way we've been talking about? But now I'm in a relationship that's more conventionally romantic than the one I was in. Of course, there there is something very tempting about that. And I think we would find our own way of doing it and talking about it. But... I think it's definitely come back into my consciousness as something that I would consider as opposed to something that seemed very inaccessible to me really it was it was an irony that as you know, it was sort of becoming something that apparently gay people could do. I thought, well, I'm not sure if I can because I'm in a sort of largely platonic and companionate relationship and if marriage is about marrying the one or the romantic partner, I'm not really, I, I wasn't in that type of relationship. So I felt that actually it wasn't open to me as an idea, even though in theory it was as, as a gay person. I didn't feel it was in the type of relationship that I was in.
0: So maybe maybe we might be dead, but it's possibly having a George A. Romero style return.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think I think we just need to talk about it with our partners and discuss what it means to us.
0: Rosie Wilby, thank you very much. Thank you. And in this week's book section, we have Peter Parker writing about a whole handful of books about the mud, blood and horror of Passchendaele. That might not cheer you up very much. But it's worth remembering in this anniversary year. We also have Hugh Perman writing about the history of the Shard, London's sharpest landmark. David Sexton examines Virginie Despont, who is a sort of French enfant terrible kind of female Welbeck. Sean McGlynn looks at the reputation of the Black Prince. Stuart Ritchie tells us why human behaviour is as it is, and Julie Burchill considers hunger. Roxane Gay's memoir of being a bit fat and a bit miserable.